0: It's really good, just to add my voice, just to welcome you all here. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be here. I do believe this is going to be uh, an important two days together. Welcome if you're here for the first time, and hopefully we'll get to know you as the the, the two days unfold. Um, In this first session, I I normally try and just do something a little devotional, though I don't lock myself into that forever and ever, but um, that's kind of how it's worked out this time. I've probably over-prepared with the time I've got, so I'll get as far as I can uh, or talk very quickly. Um, probably a bit of both. Just a few book plugs before we get any further, because uh, Angie would like to take all your money. Um, I've uh, benefited a lot from the, um, some of the, the uh, material from the 3DM guys, the Sheffield... Um, Uh, uh, Thomas Crook Church, Philadelphia, whatever it's called. I don't don't know what it's called. Anyway, but Mike Breen and Paul McConaughey have benefited a lot from that personally. And um, at our conference, Leadership Conference, we had quite a lot of materials, uh, some of which are still left. So if you've not got hold of things like um, building a discipleship culture and the huddle guide that goes with that, leading kingdom movements, um, I particularly recommend those two. But leading kingdom movements is very much a a philosophical... um, book, uh, which I feel resonates a lot with with me and what we're trying to do in spine as opposed to thick spine, sort of maximum relationship, minimum organization. So just trying to learn from some of what Mike has learned. Covenant and Kingdom, again, really helpful, looking at relationship and responsibility and how those two things work together. And then this enormous tomb... Launching Missional Communities, which, whether you're doing missional communities now or ever in the future, is a really useful book just to see another way of perhaps expressing uh, local church life in uh, the towns and communities and cities and villages where we live. So, if you want to get hold of any of those, I really would recommend them. I've I've read nearly all of that already and have benefited from it. Obviously, we've got to contextualize it in our own vision, values, and whatever, but I love to be stimulated by. Um, the grace gift of other uh, men and women of God who are you know, pioneering and doing wonderful things for the Lord, and I think we just benefit from, from the overspill of their gift. So I would recommend that you get hold of those, and Angie will do you a deal. Uh, if you'd like to turn to 1 Samuel 30, I want to just talk this morning uh, about living and leading like Jesus. Uh, now this, I've been going through 1 and 2 Samuel just in the mornings, uh, devotionally, and I have a little habit uh, that once I've read a chapter, I try to think of a tweet to sum up the chapter, just to help me, kind of, my sort of cyber journaling way of thinking, right, what is that chapter about? And when I read this chapter, uh, I just felt it had a little bit of application for us this morning, and perhaps would like to just share a few things that I've got from it personally. Um... I love the stories of David and, and, and all that went on in his life and how he, you know, how God used him. I love the, the narrative of 1 of one and 2 Samuel. And obviously Jesus is our great David. So everything we see in David's life is a mirror of what Jesus did. And we, we can see a type or a shadow of Jesus in David's life. Jesus, the Bible says, is, is our great David's Son, he's our great David. He's our King David. So, so we can learn a lot about the life of Jesus from looking at David. So, I want to just look at this particular chapter to look at what happened to David, how he handled it, mirror it a little bit, and seeing how Jesus handled similar things, and then look at how we can then be inspired, encouraged, and helped uh, to live life the way that David and our great David lived life, and how we can lead uh, in the way that they did facing. Facing some of the things that this chapter brings up it's a it's a powerful chapter this so I'll get straight into it now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag and they had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it both small and great they killed no one but carried them off and went their way And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins, and when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. David said to him, to who do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziglag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he'd taken him down, behold, they were spread across all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they'd taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. It's always good to have a camel on standby in such a situation. Remember that. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds. And the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who'd been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they didn't go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers." with what the Lord has given us. For he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. And when David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friend's the elders of Judah saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. Father, I pray as we just look together at this, you will help us just to gain some helpful things to strengthen us in living and leading in the way that Jesus did. And in the way we see David, his, his kind of forerunner, uh, ex- uh, showing us. We, we want to be men and women who who learn how to lead well and how to live well. So I pray that you would just help me just in these few moments together in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to dive just straight into it, just pick some things out, some kind of, some some things that I think leap out as obvious hallmarks. Well, the first hallmark of being able to live well and lead well, or live and lead like Jesus, is the ability to strengthen yourself in God. The ability to strengthen yourself in God. See, in the midst of the most fearsome trial, probably of David's life so far the end of this first book uh, this most fearsome trial david dug deep into god he learned how to handle personal pain and pressure without it completely derailing him you'll notice that he wasn't looking for a cause and effect uh, and it wasn't a cause and effect he'd been obedient he was anointed, he loved God, and, and suddenly this came upon him for no apparent reason. There wasn't a... He was a bit like Job, really, where uh, many people were looking for an answer, why has this happened? David didn't even ask for the answer. He, he he was more concerned with the solutions than he was with the reasons, and he was just caught with something that overtook him, and sometimes the why the why questions in life, we just have to learn how to... Do with them what David did. Not everything that happens to us, we will get an answer to. There are there are why questions we had to have to live with. Even Jesus died with a why on his lips. You know, why have you forsaken me in Gethsemane? Is is there not another way? There were why questions that Jesus had to navigate in his relationship with the Father. There are why questions David had to navigate. Uh, he could have said, Lord, why, why has this happened? But you don't find that question being asked anywhere in the chapter. Now, you and I will always find that through our lives at various times, why questions will jump at, up at us, and we need to know how to deal with them. And my encouragement to us is that we do what David and what Jesus did at that time. You strengthen yourself in God, and there's a way to do that. Now, the, the gravity of what he faced is, is huge. If we sometimes in life face personal grief, that's bad enough. Like difficult family circumstances or health challenges or whatever's going on or financial or pressure, you know, every one of us face pressure personally at times in life. That's one thing. To then have pressure in your leadership role, in the ministry and the thing that God's called you to, to do, that's also very, very demanding. When the two come together and you've got ministry pressure and personal pressure all at the same time to catastrophic degree, that is not a good day. That's not a good day he's having here. There's, there's personal grief and leadership grief coming at him both at once without any reason. There doesn't seem to be a why that he knows. There's a great setback, a double whammy of pain that hits his life for mysterious reasons. And it says in verse 6, David was greatly distressed. If that's ever an understatement, I don't know what is. Greatly distressed, but he strengthened himself in the Lord. He strengthened himself in the Lord. It's at the end of that verse. David was greatly distressed, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. The bottom line is this, of this point, is that when there's nothing left that you can draw comfort from, or when all strength, encouragement has departed from anything external, there is always the internal ability to find strength in God. That's the difference between being a saved person and not a saved person. We have a saviour. We do have a saviour. And he doesn't just save us from our sin, he saves us in life. He is a saviour. He, he is always there, no matter what we face. He, he is, by nature, one who rescues and redeems and restores. And He can't help himself. He, he, and he is on our side. And David knew that, even in his great distress. And perhaps more than any other time in his life, David had to really dig deep in God. And I would even go so far as to say that this verse 6 possibly was the pivotal point that laid the foundation for all David went on to do. Because if David had been greatly distressed and he'd have given up and walked away, then we wouldn't have had the whole thing that followed in terms of his extent, extending of, of, of the kingdom that God wanted to give him. He had to prove God in a moment of absolute isolation and devastation. He had to prove God. This was his moment to really prove God more than at any other time. And I would probably go so far as to say all public success that anybody has begins in the private place of proving God. Everybody who has ever had any fruitfulness in their life, any historical figure, any figure in this room, anyone you know who's ever done anything for God that's lasted and stood and been fruitful and advanced the kingdom, somewhere somewhere along the line, they will have had to pay the price of a private audience with God where they strengthened themselves with God when everything looked as if it collapsed. Everybody. There is no way through. Even Jesus in Gethsemane faced that moment where everything had gone. His disciples fell asleep, everyone had run away. He's on his knees, he's sweating great drops of blood. He is greatly distressed like David. He's greatly distressed. He's saying, Why? Can this not be done another way? Nevertheless I submit to your will. Surely there's a He's wrestling. He's wrestling. Do I walk away? Do I go through? Jesus the man is wrestling. Do you know what that's like to wrestle with God when the pain is so tough and you say, I don't know if I can do this. Anyone been there? Think, I, I just don't know if I can go on. I don't know if I can go on. Well, praise God, because that is a divine appointment. You may not have an answer to it, and God may never give you an answer as to why. He may never do that. He didn't give Jesus an answer there and then. Jesus died with a why on his lips, and yet a faith statement came straight after it. When he said, why have you forsaken me? He said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Even Jesus strengthened himself in his God in his last moments. Every one of us will need to strengthen ourselves in God in our last moments. We don't talk about death very much, but sometimes we need to actually say, there, is a, there are moments in life where we have to strengthen ourselves in, our, in God. And David's facing life and death situations for his family. Jesus was facing his own, more, his own kind of frailty of, of human flesh. And yet he, that moment, that great moment for David where he strengthened himself in God and that great moment for Jesus where he pushed through Gethsemane and went to the cross and we're all here because of it. Fruitfulness came because in that moment he found the ability by the grace of God and the Spirit of God to strengthen himself in God. Never, ever throw the towel in when the pressure comes on. Because it's only ever going to result in your strengthening and your fruitfulness if you handle it the right way. All things work together for the good of those that are in Christ. All things. Even your bitterest day, your di- most difficult problem, your most gut-wrenching moments, when like David, um, it says in verse 4, they had no more strength to weep. This is not like, you know, oh, I had a bad day. You know, you know. No, this, this is, he's, he's exhausted with grief. He's exhausted. He had no more strength to weep. Just to make a point here, tears are good. Particularly men here, right? Tears are good. Tears are not weakness. David was not expressing weakness. He was expressing healthy emotion. He's expressing something of the great distress in his heart. If you're carrying great distress in your heart, but it doesn't come out, it will become something that becomes destructive to you. This is good processing of great pain is good jesus poured out his soul you know expressing what's going on inwardly is really important our culture doesn't tend to encourage that well it hasn't done i think now it tends to be gone too far where you just live by your feelings but for for many men we're still kind of not always comfortable With that, But they had no more strength to weep. And yet still he found a way to strengthen himself in the Lord his God. This is amazing. He's got no strength left to weep. Deeply distressed. Utterly uh, uh, facing ruin. Even the people had turned against him and were blaming him for something that wasn't his fault. So he, he strengthened himself. Well, how did he do that? Well, a few thoughts as to how to strengthen yourself in God. Number one. You've got to always draw on who God is. Not on what it looks like he might be because you can't understand what's happened. <laughs> draw on, what, on who he is, who he says himself to be. Don't entertain thoughts of him that are not worthy of him. But even in the midst of difficulty, and you think, Lord, why? Why? That question will never lead to a good answer. It will never lead you anywhere exalting to Christ, exalting to the Lord. Rather, don't entertain thoughts of God that are not worthy of him. If I may quote uh, Horatius Bonar, he says this, Let us not misjudge God. Let us not give way to any hard thoughts of him as if he sought our injury. He is no austere man, but kindly and loving Let us not draw any misjudgments from the Bible, from our own experience, from the experience of others, from our ignorance of his ways. All unbelief is misconstruction of God. It is denying that God is gracious, that God is love. Such misjudgment wrongs him grievously and profits us not. Nay, does us unspeakable harm. It is sin. It's the worst of sin. The sin of blaspheming the true God or of worshipping a false God. It's a fearful thing to misapprehend or misjudge God. I, I think that's a good quote. He saying, I refuse to entertain thoughts of God that are not what the Bible tells me he is like. Even if circumstances would... And the enemy will make us question God's goodness you say, no, I don't understand this, but this I do know. God is good. He is kind. He is loving. He's on my side. He weeps with me. He stands with me. He's, he's carrying my burdens with me. He, the Lord is good. He is good in all his ways. And it seems to me the biblical characters had more of an ability to hold on to who God was than sometimes we do. We've, we dispense with the nature and character and attributes of God if it doesn't suit our circumstances. That's not robust faith. That's building God in your own image. God is good, kind, loving, always. He seeks our blessing. He's tender. He feels our infirmities. He cries more than you do when difficulty overtakes you. And then we think, well, how, why, then, why is he that? No, never mind that. Never mind, forget the why question. Concentrate on who he is. Unchangeable and wonderful in all his ways. The next thing to do to strengthen yourself is to plead plead the promises to to God and express your feelings. Tell him what he says. I I have a a bit of a a saying when it comes to biblical promises and, and even prophetic promises. If he didn't mean it, he wouldn't have said it. You can go to him with that, say, Lord, you've said, you have said, you have a problem. Because my circumstances and your word do not match. You have the problem. God loves that because he wants people who will believe him whatever and refuse to settle for anything less than he's promised. Because it's God's honor that's at stake. If he doesn't mean it, and he won't say it. And if he has said it, he has the problem. Some people think I'm being irreverent when I talk like that. I think God loves it. Because he wants people to say, come on, come on. Come on, after me. Come on, what's the matter with you? Get after me. Do you believe me or don't you? He's not soft. He can take it. He can take it when we argue our case with him. The, the, the importunate widow is an encouragement to knock on the door till we're irritating. That is what she, what she was irritating. And Jesus says, be irritating to the point of, of God doing something because you won't let go. Is that because God is mean? No, it's because God is trying to draw something out of us that should be in us. But it's often not in us deeply enough. We just give up. If we look at our circumstances when they're really grim, and we think, oh, this is hopeless, God will just say, yeah, it is, isn't it? You know, We have to say, God, you, do something. Do something. I can't do anything. Tell him the problem. The next thing is what David actually did is, he inquired of God. That's a beautiful thing. He inquired of God in verse 8. He copes with the pain, he embraces the pain, the difficulty. And then it says, he he didn't ask why, he said, what next? What do I do? It's much better to invest your time in asking what now than why. Because you'll never get an answer to why, but you will always get an answer to what next. Always. God loves it when we say, tell me what to do. He loves that. So he waited on the Lord with patience, with trust, with dependency, vulnerability, and worked it through with process. So the second thing uh, we learned from David is the ability to be relentlessly obedient. That's the second kind of heading, right? He's the ability to strengthen yourself in God. Secondly, the ability to be relentlessly obedient. Verse 8, David inquired of the Lord, Are you and I relentlessly obedient whatever? Like a dog with a bone. You know, if you throw the bone, the dog goes with it. It just won't let go. I mean, we must be like that about obedience. If God said to do something and he hasn't said to stop, you keep doing it. Whatever, you just don't, you're un, it's not negotiable to be disobedient. Just relentlessly obedient. So David inquired of the Lord. Why? Because he wanted to be obedient to what God told him to do in this situation. He said, Lord, tell me what to do. Do I pursue them? What do I do? David doesn't want answers. He wants solutions. It's different. His focus, is, his focus is on that. His focus is on what God is going to do going forward rather than why things have happened. To be obedient as we move forward is a lifelong pursuit. If we as a family of churches, please, please hear me when I say this, if as a family of churches we are going to inherit everything God's promised us, we won't do it without relentless obedience. We won't do it. It is the foundation to everything God will prophetically say to us. He's looking for a people that will just keep doing it, even if it looks like even if they I don't know, got all kinds of emotional challenges because of what's going on it. life, just keep going. Even Jesus said, yeah, I've come to do your will, O God. Not my will, but yours. There's a relentless obedience in Jesus' life. Jesus is often saying, come, let's go up from here. You know, I've got to be about my father's business. He's, he's constantly demonstrating, being led by God, rather than having a five-year plan, even though he knew the, the kind of ultimate destiny. He just was relentlessly obedient in the moment. I love the fact that, we, that, that I, I believe that we have a compass, but we don't have a map. Right, if you say, what's the strategy for relational mission? No idea. But I do, we do have a compass. Right, this is our compass. We have the word, of God and the word of God and the will of God. That's our compass. We don't have a map. We don't, we don't know what the next turn is. But I, I want to live like that. I want to live like that. I don't want to know what's going to happen in five years' time. I don't know that. God knows that. I don't know that. I'm just concentrating on trying to be as best as I can as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a... A, 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 a Christian, as a member of society, as, a, as a, a, a servant of the Lord. I want to be relentlessly obedient. I'll leave him to tell me what to do, and I'll just do it. That's, 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 I'm too simple to do anything more than that. I mean, that's enough. That's difficult enough, isn't it? Relentless obedience? Dear Lord. It's our constant reflex. He hit the knee. Obedience. It's just, there's a reflex in us. If God says it, we do it. We do it. Verse 9, God told him what to do, so David set out. He was relentlessly obedient. Didn't make sense on paper. Just think about what David did here. He's just, he's setting out to attack the people that have just defeated him. Good move. And, verse 9, when he gets. Somewhere, 200 of them say, well, I can't do anymore. So he, he actually gets to the battle with less than he started out with. And God told him to do it. It's getting better. He sets out in obedience. The resources he thinks he has, a third of it is left before he even gets there. The 600 go down to 400. Now, if anyone here is in church leadership or leadership in the marketplace, of life you, you know what it's like to set out on a project church plant church building new community impact whatever so whatever you, you know whatever new ministry you set out because god's told you you know what you've got to start with and suddenly a third of what you thought you had is no longer with you any church planters understand that you know you've got 10 people you're down to six before your first meeting think but i'm just doing what god told me yes and he's doing what happened to david it's showing you that the strength and the success isn't in what your resources are. Your strength and your success is in the fact that God's told you to do it. David could have turned up there with one camel and he'd have still won. Some of you feel you have got a church plant with one camel. <laughs> the point is you will still win through. Jesus, likewise, had less and less as he approached the cross with which to win the battle. So you get Jesus with the the crowds are following him. Height of his popularity, palm branches, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the whole city's, you know, uh, stirred by this man. By the time you get to Gethsemane, he's on his own. The moment when his greatest battle is ahead, he's got his least amount of resources, and he faces the cross on his own, and it looks like he's been completely defeated because he breathes his last. Why did it work? It worked because he was relentlessly obedient. He was relentlessly obedient, even when everything else had gone. Next thing, moving very quickly, that we see in David's life, you might think this is a bit of a strange one, but I think this is really important for us as leaders. So it's the ability to strengthen yourself in God, the ability to uh, be relentlessly obedient. Next one, the ability to show mercy. The ability to show mercy. In verse 11 and 12, they find this Egyptian. Now, he is of no consequence to them whatsoever. But they feed him, they nourish him. Now, you could say, yeah, well, they're doing that just to get the information out of him. Okay, but once they've done that, they did good to him. He's just an Egyptian. He's of no consequence. They didn't, they, they didn't kill him. They, didn't, you know, they showed mercy to someone they didn't need to show mercy to. Can I just make a point? As far as Jesus is concerned, we were just like worthless Egyptians who we found wandering in the desert because we were too weak to do anything else. And Jesus feeds us, waters us, and we ask him, Lord, will you have mercy on me, don't kill me? And he says, yeah. I've, I've rescued you. There's something extraordinary about the mercy of Jesus. Some of it, Sometimes I think we can think there's something redeemable about us. We think, well, yeah, I can understand why Jesus, you know, full of love and mercy would save me because I know I'm a mess. But, you know, now he's got to work in me. I'm, you know, I can see why he did that. I mean, really, have you ever lifted a garden slab up and you look underneath it and it's all got slugs and squirmy things that's us, all right? That, that, that is, we were by nature objects of wrath. There's nothing redeemable, nothing pleasant, nothing at all beautiful to look at. It's like Jesus, God lifted up the concrete slab of his garden, found us squirming underneath, and says, I love them. That is something like the depths of his love for those who were by nature objects of wrath. Like this despised Egyptian, they find wandering in the open countryside, and they have mercy upon him. There should be something within us culturally, whereby we just naturally show mercy to people. The undeserving. I was talking to Matt before we began, just about uh, I don't know. It's quite an interesting conversation we had about sometimes how uh, particularly uh, just numbers of people we'd heard who say we've got. Neighbors' problems, no, I don't mean the soap neighbors, I mean people who live near them, you know, problems in the neighborhood and all and, uh, road rage and, and just, just stuff of life that you notice is on the increase. And just, we are to be people who somehow demonstrate another kingdom. So whether it's in the supermarket or on the road or in your neighborhood, there's just something about us that just is merciful to people who often don't deserve it. Is that not what the kingdom looks like? This should be something about our churches where people, the most undeserving, can come in amongst us and feel the mercy. Jesus saved us out of mercy. It's a lovely word, isn't it? Mercy. He's had mercy on those who don't deserve it. And it said in verse 22, wicked and worthless people tried to persuade David to give, to give a portion according to how people had worked. Now, the Bible seems to say that a lack of mercy is wicked and worthless. It, it, the people who were too worn out to fight in the battle, just put yourself in this situation. You've fought hard to get all your livestock and your family back And you've got the livestock on the family's back of other people who got to the same point as you and said, Nah, I can't be bothered. I'm just too exhausted. Too exhausted. I can't do this anymore. You go on. I'm just going to sit here. You win the battle. You bring back all their goods. And they say, Oh, thank you ever so much. And something within them said, No, hang on. Hang, Hang on. I fought for your. I fought harder than you. I deserve more than you. And David says, that will not be the culture we have here. The culture we have here is whether you've fought hard or whether you've barely raised a, flick, a, a pen knife, everyone gets the same. Isn't that what the kingdom's like? In church life, whether you've got people who are a blessing or a bit of a pain, everybody gets the same. Yeah, everybody gets the same. We, we are a merciful people. Jesus had mercy on me, I was completely undeserving, I was useless to him. I gave him nothing but problems, I had nothing to him, I caused him to suffer. There's nothing worth redeeming in me, and yet he's had mercy. So if he can do that to me, I think really there's a clue for how I need to then live my life. Mercy must be something when, we, when any of our churches are squeezed, mercy drips out. Mercy just drips So People say, oh, relational mission, yeah, they're very merciful very merciful there's so much in society that needs mercy mercy means facing people with the cross sometimes sometimes we've got to face people with the cross that's merciful if you go to the doctors and there's something wrong with you, you don't want him to say oh, i'm sure it'll be all right you want him to tell you if there's something wrong that needs treating mercy isn't soft but it is always loving it's always love it's always redemptive it's always saying it not to point out fault but to say look Look, my friend, you, you, you've got to get this sorted. And I'm saying it because I love you. I want you, I want you to enjoy all that God's got for you. Got to, it's mercy that's making me speak to you this way. David was a merciful man. Jesus was a merciful man. We need to be merciful, merciful men and women. Lastly, it was the ability to see great fruitfulness through faithfulness. In verse 18 and 19, it says, Nothing was missing, whether great or small nothing was missing whether great or small and even more he came back with more than he went with do you know somehow when you and i face those kind of moments like in verse six and life we face those crucible moments where our life gets put in a crucible perhaps ministry or personal challenges some we get put in a crucible it might last a short while might last a long while, whatever, but we're in that crucible. If we faithfully keep loving the Lord, trusting the Lord, serving the Lord, honoring the Lord, being merciful, serving Him. Relentless obedience, if we keep doing that faithfully by his grace, we can't do it in human effort, but we say, God, keep me obedient. Keep me loving you. Help me. Help me. Give me the grace I need. If we keep doing that, if that's our daily prayer, Lord, please keep me so that I'm honoring you. I tell you, our lives will be full of fruitfulness. Uh, Full of fruitfulness. Jesus said, it's to my Father's glory you bear much fruit if you abide in me. Well, abiding in Jesus isn't a warm, fuzzy feeling. Abiding in Jesus, well, it might be that, but it's not only that. Abiding in Jesus is saying, Jesus, keep me like you. Keep me living like you live. Keep me reacting the way you reacted. Keep me making the decisions the same way you did. Keep me relentlessly obedient. Keep me living and leading the way you did, Jesus. Because if I abide in you, if I make my life a mirror of how you lived, then I will bear much fruit. It's a promise. Is it simple? Yes. Is it easy? No. Jesus' life was not easy, but it was simple. And I believe God wants us to be men and women who live and lead like David, like Jesus, who model some of these values together. So let's just stand together. I'd just like to pray for us, and then we'll move on to the next thing we've got to do. We've got plenty of time during the day to, to apply things in, in, um, in kind of prayer together. Um, in actual fact, what I'm going to suggest is just to get us all moving a little bit vocal, because I know when we come together, it just takes a while to get warmed up. I just want to suggest, just find uh, two or three people very quickly. You'll have to be quick because we want to keep the, the, the agenda moving so we don't want to lose time. If you could just find one or two others, just pray for each other some of the things that we just looked at there. So, ready? Go. Just, find, just move around. Try and find people you don't know if you can and just... Just anything that struck you from the passage, just share it, pray for each other, then we'll move on.